This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, as we come to the passage that we are examining this morning and we'll look at over the next couple of weeks, it is a reminder of the central role of the family within your plan, the crucial role that the family plays, not only in the life of a local church, but also in the life of a nation, in the life of a culture. The Family is the central training ground that you have established and ordained from even before the fall. And Father, we recognize that the, the family is under tremendous attack today in Satan's world. It's under tremendous attack from the culture around us. And as we have observed within our own lifetime, we have seen an increasing uh, deterioration in the understanding, the devotion, the focus Uh, and the health of the family in this nation. And, Father, it starts with each believer that we might focus upon your word, refocus our uh, priorities in terms of our own responsibilities towards our families, and that you might uh, use your word as we study today to really challenge us to get things right in terms of our own family as the training center for, for the church and for the world, for the nation. Father, we pray that you would guide and direct our thinking this morning, and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So we come in our study in Colossians. We reach another focal point here in Colossians chapter, uh, chapter 3, where the shift goes from the focus on the marriage, the parents, the role, responsibility of the wife, the role, responsibility of the husband, and now the focus is upon the role and responsibility of the children and the uh, parent. It is a, this passage isn't just focusing on fathers, as we will see, but it is focusing upon uh, parents. And this, so in this context, we learn that um, uh, what Paul is doing in Colossians 3, he expands on it a little bit in Ephesians 6, focuses on the roles and responsibilities of the children within the home and the parents within the home. This is uh, something that is extremely important because, as we will see, these verses in Colossians and in Ephesians, which is about the only place where Paul, where the New Testament really focuses on family training, is crucial to understanding the, to developing the spiritual health 
of a culture, of a church, a culture, a nation. And this is the area where Satan has really been attacking this nation over the past uh, 60 or 70 years, ever since the end of the Second, uh, Second World War. I think that we saw a tremendous deterioration occur between 1945 and 1970, and that actually lay a groundwork for what has happened since then. Most of what has occurred in terms of the deterioration and the decline of the family since 1970 had its foundation in beliefs that shifted in the, in the 50s and the 60s. Whenever we look at a passage, and just briefly let's look at this passage, Colossians 3, 20 and 21, first a brief command to the children, then a mandate to the, to the parents. Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. So we have two points there, and then this is expanded a little bit in Ephesians 6, 1 through 4. First, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. And honor your father, and then there's a quote from the Old Testament from the Ten Commandments, from the Decalogue. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with you, and you may live long on the earth. And you fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. Now, the way I want to look at this within the next uh, couple of weeks is to break this down in terms of what the Bible teaches about the family. This is, in some sense, an expansion on what the Scripture teaches about the third divine institution, which is the institution of the family. Remember, there are five divine institutions in Scripture, a divine institution is an absolute social uh, social uh, law, as it were, that God built into the fabric of the uh, social nature of human beings. Now, human beings were designed to be social. We have the ability to love and to respond to being loved. Uh, that, that is part of being in the image and likeness of God. Uh, Adam was created initially alone, but then God said it is not good for the man to be alone. So man was designed to be a social uh, creature, to be involved with others, not to just live in complete, uh, complete isolation. And so this was before there was ever any, any sin. So man is designed to be a social entity, and as part of that, uh, that fact, God built, the, built in these social laws. Now, it's interesting because in the recent election, uh, as you, if you have paid attention to some of the political analysis since the, um, since the last election and the uh, Republican loss, one of the things that has come up is that conservatives uh, need to separate their social ideals from their economic ideals. One of the reasons they say that uh, conservatives lost in this election is because there are too many people who are liberal socially 
They have liberalized ideas on sexuality. They have liberalized ideas on marriage. They have liberalized ideas on the role of men and women in society, and they don't want to buy into a conservative view on uh, on those issues. And so they they even though they're much of the country may be conservative fiscally because they're liberal socially. Uh, we need to just the Republican Party or conservatives just need to focus on these conservative uh, economic issues. The problem with that, as we'll see, is that the Scripture does not, not only does not separate social realities from economic realities, but it emphasizes the fact that these are integrally connected. So when there is a breakdown in the social laws of the divine institutions, it has radical negative economic consequences. As just a simple illustration that uh, that can be extrapolated in many different ways, if you look at a, uh, um, let's say, for example, a married couple who's been married for approximately 10 to 15 years where the husband is working successfully and provides a good six-figure income for the family, and the wife, because of the success of the husband, is able to stay at home and to focus on the children, then all of a sudden, because of sin, social sin, on the part of either the man or the woman, there is a breakdown in the marriage and a divorce. And there are economic consequences for that. Uh, There will be, if there is a battle between the husband and the wife over the assets, both will lose and the lawyer will get more money and become more financially successful. And in many cases, I've seen this so many times, the wife is left dependent uh, upon too many other people because she has been out of the workforce for so long, she may not have had the appropriate training, uh, education, whatever, to be in the workforce because perhaps she focused on being a mother and uh, being successful at that. And as a result, she now can only earn a minimal amount of money uh, she's dependent upon the ex-husband now They pay child support. In many cases in this country, the, you've got deadbeat dads who don't pay the child support. And so you, now you have uh, created an absolute uh, uh, storm of problems, economic problems within this family. And if they become dependent upon the government for welfare, for food stamps, things of that nature, now it becomes a problem uh, for everyone. And so there are economic consequences to the violation of the divine institutions. These are not uh, social suggestions. They are social absolutes that are built into the framework of God's creation. The first is individual human responsibility, responsibility to God first and foremost, responsibility to live as God has created us and called us and mandated us in the scripture. Second, you have marriage. Marriage is to be between a man and a woman. It is not to be between a man and many women or one woman and many men or uh, between two of the same Gender, They are to be separated by uh, and have a heterosexual union. When you have a homosexual union, again, it will have uh, many unintended consequences in the 
in, in the uh, social and economic realm. Uh, <clears throat> then when you get to the family, which is the third divine institution, all three of these, of course, were established before there was sin in the world. When, when um, you have the family, that it is the role of the parents to train the children. It is not the role of the parents to see necessarily that the children are well-trained. It is not your role to delegate everything to someone else. Delegation of some things is, I think, appropriate. But, dele- but, but we live in a culture when too much is delegated because mom and dad have too many other things that they want to do in life, and so they allow all of these distractions to come in and to take them away from their primary role as a parent, which is to train up their children to be successful, independent independent adults. And when they fail in that and the children do not become successful, independent adults, then they become dependent failures. And that has economic consequences upon the nation. And when you multiply this times several uh, several million, tens of millions of people, then it becomes a huge uh, drag on the entire culture. And we're witnessing a lot of that today. Uh, people too often try to come up with simplistic solutions to things, which is, uh, I think, a part of the political process because we are in a terrible uh, situation where everything's got to be uh, reduced to you know, five-second sound bites. Therefore, nobody can think because if you can only think in terms of five-second sound bites and seven-minute inter- intervals because that's how frequently commercials come on TV, then you will never learn how to think and you will always be uh, just a sheep, a sacrificial lamb, at the mercy of any anybody who is educated and who can think and who is is, is independent, and so these these divine institutions are incredibly significant. And now we recognize that we live in the midst of a of a of a world uh, of a culture that is uh, become increasingly antagonistic to a biblical view of these divine institutions. But if there's going to be any future in, for this country, then we have to get back to that. And that's got to start with the only group of people who really pay attention to, the, to what the Word of God says, and that's Christians. Now, divine institutions are for everybody. They're not for believers or uh, alone, or uh, that distinction isn't made. They're for everyone. If you are a human being, then if you follow the divine institutions, then you will see a measure of success in your life. And if you violate them, then you will see a measure of failure. So we talked about marriage the past few weeks in terms of the Christian institution of marriage, and now we're looking at family. And remember that this this command that we see initially in Ephesians chapter 6 is uh, addressed to, while it's addressed to believers, the original foundation that is uh, that's quoted here from uh, from Exodus is part of the uh, Decalogue. It's part of the Ten Commandments, which was addressed to everyone in the uh, nation of Israel, and therefore it was for everyone, whether they were a believer or an unbeliever. The quote comes from Exodus chapter 20, uh, verse 12, and it's important to understand this. 
But when we address this, as we get, as I get into this, we have to remember that everything has a context. It's so important to focus on the context, the original context in which Paul wrote, the context of the quotation, since he connects this back to uh, the Mosaic Law. There's an Old Testament context to, uh, to those uh, mandates as well. There's the context of Paul's readers, those to whom he originally addressed this in both Ephesus and Colossae, that were men and women who were the product of the Greco-Roman culture. And then there is a connection to our context, which is where you and I live in the 20, 21st century. So I want to begin by just looking a little bit at the original cultural context in Rome. Remember, human culture as we normally understand it, which is a uh, collection of all of the beliefs, ideas, and values of a, of a human, uh, human society, that, that, that it's not just high culture. Some people use the term culture in the sense of uh, uh, the, the higher forms of culture, art, theater, literature, things of that nature. I'm using the term in terms of all of the values, everything that happens within a social uh, collection of, of individuals of people, and so when we look at culture in that sense, that term is roughly equivalent to the term that the scripture uses called worldliness it 's that system of values that are part of the devil 's world and you're either you 're either living on values that are biblical or you 're living on values that are part of the devil 's world you don 't have uh, uh, any kind of neutral territory. There are successful unbelievers who are part of the devil 's world who operate on establishment principles or principles of the divine institutions that give them a measure of success. And then there are also Christians who are uh, in the family of God who try to operate on the principles of the devil's world and the culture of the world around them, and the result of that is always going to be a personal tragedy and collapse because ultimately... You're building your life on something that is um, insufficient and is never, never stable. Now, in Paul's time, he's addressing a group of believers in Ephesus and in Colossae that are products of the belief system of the Greco-Roman world. They, before they became Christians, they had perhaps been involved in the mystery religions that were very popular in this area of uh, what we now call Turkey, but at that time was part of uh, Asia, Asia, the Roman province of, of Asia. And they, were, uh, they could have come from a background where they worshipped in the, in the uh, mystery religions, or maybe they were involved in one of the more popular philosophical type of uh, groups that dominated in that part of the world, uh, but they were also part of the Roman Empire and the structure of Roman values, especially those that were related to the family. Now, under the Roman Republic, which preceded the Roman Empire, there were some very strong and some uh, good values expressed in their laws related to the family. But by the time we get into the period where we are now, the many of the uh, initial values of the Roman Republic had deteriorated, and one of the uh, factors that had deteriorated was in the role of the family and how the family 
how the parents viewed the children and the authority of the father. As we see in the second verse that we're looking at, there is a strong admonition here to the fathers in terms of how uh, they interact with their with their uh, children. Now, in the first century, in Paul's time, Rome had a view of the authority of the father in the home that made the human father all supreme in the home. He had more power than you can possibly imagine. The law for this was called in the Latin patria potestas, which means the father's power or the father's authority. The father had absolute power over the family. He could sell them all as slaves if he desired. He could make them all work in the fields, in chains if he wished. He could punish them any way he saw fit. He could uh, he could take over the role of the courts, and he could impose his own punishment upon his uh, family and upon his children, even to the point of inflicting the death penalty. The father truly ruled in the household, and nobody could challenge uh, his authority. When a child was born in a Roman family, the child was that would be placed, the newborn baby would be placed between the feet of the father. If the father picked up the child, then the child would stay in the home and be raised as part of the family. If the father walked away from the child, then the child would literally be thrown away. They would be gathered up in the evening, taken to the forum, where at night the boys would then be uh, selected and taken away to be slaves, and the female babies would be taken away to be raised to be prostitutes. We see uh, this view of children in the ancient world exhibited in one of the uh, letters in the Oxyrhynchus Papyri Collection uh, from the time of 1 B.C. This is roughly the same time as the New Testament, about the time that Jesus was born. A man named Hilarion here is writing to his wife, Elise. He says, it begins, Hilarion to Elise's wife, heartiest greetings. Know that we are still even now in Alexandria. Do not worry if when all others return, I remain in Alexandria. I beg and beseech you to take care of the little child, and as soon as we receive wages, I will send them to you. If, good luck to you, you have another child. If it is a boy, let it live. If it is a girl, expose it. See, they they just really didn't value young girls as much because they couldn't grow up and make make money uh, to help support the family. We also have another statement from, from approximately the same time from Seneca, who was a well-known Roman philosopher, who stated, We slaughter a fierce ox, we strangle a mad dog, we plunge a knife into a sick cow, and children who are born weakly and deformed, we drown. So you see, Paul is writing to a culture that has a, a very distorted view of the role of children. And it is a utilitarian view towards children. The children only matter insofar as what they can do to help the family. There is no concept of what you have in a Judeo-Christian framework where every child that is born is born is in the image of God and therefore has value because they are in the image of God. They are, have value in and of themselves and not based on some utilitarian uh, concept. So Paul is writing to this 
people who've been raised and trained and brainwashed by this pagan culture to uh, not really value children because they are human beings and in the image of God. This is no different from our own culture. In our modern culture, uh, there has been a gradual increase and rapid increase, I would say, among uh, of child abuse. Now, this isn't simply because we have better reporting mechanisms. That's often what you may hear from people, that, well, these, these rates are pretty much the same. You know, we don't know what it was back so long ago because uh, we weren't keeping uh, meticulous records. I would challenge that. What we see in the Scripture, and one of the things I pointed out when I taught through Judges some years ago, is the more pagan a culture becomes, the more the culture is influenced by the ideas of, of, of pagan values, the more abusive it becomes to women and to children. And it is historically, it is only through the influence of Christianity that women are valued, their, their, their value is elevated, and the value of children is elevated. And so we, we've seen in our culture a rapid deterioration of the value of children. And uh, just a couple of statistics. Since 1998, 14 years ago, the daily death rate in the U.S. from child abuse and neglect has gone from approximately three a day to five a day in 2010. From three a day to five a day, it, it hit four in 2006. So we're seeing an increase in the death rate of children uh, based on, you know, of children due to neglect. Eighty percent of those that die from abuse are under the age of four. And according to uh, abuse statistics from uh, 2006, one in 58 children. Uh, suffer some form of abuse. Now, I think their categories for abuse may be, we could debate some of those things, but I think that's generally uh, a, a good statistic we, because it indicates that there is not a positive view towards children in our culture. As our culture has become more self-absorbed, more narcissistic, children are viewed as just something that gets in the way of mom and dad's success, mom and dad's personal pleasure, uh, mom and dad's lifestyle. And as that has increased, we've seen uh, a related decrease in the value of children. And yet the Bible teaches a completely different view of children. Children are not valued for their utility. They are valued because they are a gift from God. Psalm 127, 3 through 5 is the benchmark passage for this, where the psalmist, under divine inspiration, writes, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. This is seen as a gift. Children are something positive. Why are children seen as something positive? Well, that's explained in the next verse. Uh, a metaphor is used that it compares children to the arrows in the hands of a warrior. Uh, like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. So happy is the man, verse 5, happy is the man who has his quiver full of them. They shall not be ashamed, that is, the parents, but shall speak with their enemies in the gate. So what, what is going on here? A warrior is able to protect and defend himself 
by virtue of having a well-stocked armory. He has the weapons he needs to influence those who would take advantage of him, those who would steal from him, those who would take away from him his country, his freedom, and his family. What is it that gives him that power over the enemy? It's his weapons. Now, that, that's the basis for this analogy. If you are parents and you're raising up children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, then what you have the ability to do is to expand and multiply your influence against a godless culture through your children. So if you have one child, you have one arrow in your quiver. If you have eight or ten, you have multiplied your influence through uh, by eightfold or ninefold. And this is the focal point. Children are the means by which believers, if they are following biblical mandates for training up a child, then they will extend their influence uh, against the godless culture that is encroaching upon the family. This is a completely different way of looking at the family. We have been so influenced by uh, individualism, I think, in America that the, we look at the family as, as uh, two individuals who are married together, emphasis on individuals, and then one, two, three, four, five individuals as children, but they're focus, we focus more on them as individuals, and we've lost sight of being able to look at the marriage as a unity in itself. But this is what, what the Bible teaches, is that, uh, that the two, the male and the female, are to leave uh, mother and father, and the two will become one. It's understanding the significance of that unity that takes place in marriage that is then extended through the children so the family is also viewed as this type of unity. Now, when we're influenced by paganism, we have a terrible problem in understanding this distinction between what philosophers call the one and the many. Now, this is going to get into a little philosophy here, but just bear with me. We have in Christianity an ultimate reality. Our view of ultimate reality is a triune God, a triune God wherein the essence of God is one. God is one being. He is he's a unity. He is one in his essence. But he also exists as three individuals. Now, because the ultimate reality in Christianity is absolute unity and equally absolute distinction, this solves a problem that has plagued human philosophers all the way back to the pre-Socratics. Pre-Socratics began this, in Greek philosophy, began this debate as to whether or not ultimate reality was one or many. See, in human thought, you, 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 you can't, it's one or the other. They can't comprehend how it's both together. Now, let's see how this works out in just a simple illustration. If you think that ultimate reality is the unity, the one, then how's that going to play out in the family? Well, if ultimate reality is the one, then the ultimate reality ends up being the father, the one. He's the authority. It plays itself out in political theory. The ultimate reality isn't based on the individuals. The ultimate value isn't on the parts. It's on the whole, the state. So the state becomes a god, or the religious system, as in Islam, becomes 
the dominant factor, and it is it, it cancels out the emphasis on the individuals. Remember, it's one or the other. You're either emphasizing the whole or you're emphasizing the parts, but you can't value both at the same time because your view of ultimate reality can't comprehend that. That is, if you're thinking consistently. So when you live in a in a uh, totalitarian environment where the state becomes the all-encompassing reality, then what you will discover is a philosophical view within the culture that, that the only thing that matters is the one. Whereas if you live in a completely fragmented culture and society where everything depends on the individuals and everything gets broken down into its, its individual components and there's no unity... Uh, our unity suffers tremendously because of the emphasis on the parts, then you've got the other extreme. So these ideas, while they seem to most people to be abstract and that's just uh, philosophical talk, etc., it's, it, it, it's not that. Just because you haven't comprehended it doesn't mean that those people like the founding fathers of the United States and others throughout history haven't thought profoundly and deeply about these issues. The fundamental issue in philosophy is this issue of trying to explain how things can be one and many. It's called the problem of the one and the many, unity and diversity, uh, many other uh, other terms. It is the central one of the central problems in philosophy. But as a Christian, our view of ultimate reality is that not only is there value to each individual part, where you can value the husband and the wife as individuals, both created in the image and likeness of God, but at the same time, they combine as a unit. They combine as a unity, as one in one, as one unit, and it, that is equally important. It's not one or the other. The same is true of the family. It's not just the parts. It's not just the whole. It is both. Because as Christians, with our view of reality, we can bring both the one and the many together. We can give equal value to each part without sacrificing the whole. But when you think as a pagan, you're either emphasizing the whole or you're emphasizing the parts. You can't understand how the two go together. You cannot have, in Western civilization, because of the influence of Christianity, this developed our view of the value of each individual over against the state, which was a dominant view in feudalism. And so you, it, it generated a view of politics that came out heavily influenced in, um, in, in British thought, heavily influenced by Puritan thought and their understanding of the Trinity, where you can value the whole, the society as a whole, and the government as a whole, without sacrificing the value of each individual. And you can value each individual and elevate the significance of each individual without sacrificing the whole. And so this is a fundamental issue in, uh, in working out uh, our, as part of our understanding of the divine institutions. So what we see here in Psalm 127, 3 through 5 is something totally consistent with that. Is it is the family unit that ha- where the, the father has properly trained the children, where the children then become uh, his influence within the culture and society. That's verse 5. Happy is the man who has his quiver full of them. He has produced a number of children and trained them well. They're thinking biblically. 
They shall not be ashamed, but shall speak with their enemies in the gate. The gate is the place of uh, power. This is where the courts would meet, the elders of the village would meet. Uh, this is the uh, city council. And so when there is opposition, um, this is where things would be adjudicated. And the idea here is they are able to stand against their enemies uh, in the court of law because of the training they have received within the family. So the family unit is protected and built on the basis of, uh, of, of the children. It's, and we're going to see something tragic that's going to take place in this country because we've lost that view of the family in the next uh, in the next 20 to 30 years we have seen such a deterioration towards the divine institutions in this country since the end of world war 2 with the emphasis on every individual has the right to pursue whatever it is they want to in life see we've overemphasized the individual so everybody gets to do their own thing everybody it's 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 judges again it's everyone does what's right in their own eyes as a result of that we've seen uh, the divorce rate just skyrocket. We've seen the birth rate in uh, the historic American culture. We've been influenced in, uh, by numerous uh, Hispanics and Asians and others who have come in with, with some different values. But in terms of the historic Protestant foundation of this nation, we have seen uh, a collapse in the birth rate. So that if, if it were not for the influx of Hispanics into the uh, U.S. population, we would be on a negative trajectory in terms of population growth. And uh, as a result of that, there isn't a generation coming up behind the baby boomers that can truly take care of their parents that can provide for their parents. See, that's part of the family responsibility. Uh, biblically speaking, you see that a wise father lays up, stores up treasure, not just for himself, but to pass on as an inheritance to his children. That's in, that's in Proverbs. And so there are the financial resources then for the children to take care of the parents. But when those financial resources are destroyed through the selfishness of the parents in divorce or they're, they're wiped out because of their own profligate spending on their own desires or they decided, well, we're not going to have children because we're too busy with our careers and we're not going to follow the biblical mandate of training the next generation, then what comes along is a collapse and these uh, baby boomers are going to hit their senior years when they start to have strokes, when they start to have dementia, and they're not going to have anybody to take care of them. Uh, they're not even going to have anybody to come and visit them when they're put into some sort of institution, a nursing home or a, uh, something of that nature. Uh, I've thought a lot about this. I'm an only child of an only child, and I was not able to have children. And as I sat up there with my dad, I often thought, who's going to sit there with me? And I thought, this is a picture of an entire generation that is going to be left alone while they're there in the hospital without children to come and take care of them and to make sure that the things that need to be done are being done. And this is going to bring, so the, so the baby boom generation that got into all of this narcissism coming out of the 60s is going to reap the whirlwind 
They are going to reap what they have sown in terms of their uh, self-centeredness. And it is going to be a tragic, lonely end for thousands upon thousands, hundreds of thousands of, of, of Americans as they reach those senior years with no one there to pass on uh, and to take care of them as they reach those years. This is a consequence of the self-centeredness and the failure to properly understand the biblical emphasis on family. So this is a crucial study that we're, uh, we're getting into. Now, as Colossians 3.20 begins, it says, Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is uh, well-pleasing to the Lord. Now, the word that is used here for children is uh, the Greek word techna. It's not brephos, which is a word for infants. It's the word for uh, children, and it can refer to adult children as well as to infant children. It therefore covers the entire range of human offspring. And so the idea here is that children are to obey their parents as long as they are properly under their uh, authority and under their roof. Sometimes today you have children who go off to college, they develop a degree of independence, and then they can't uh, get a job, and they come home, and they're back under the uh, roof and the financial management of their parents because they, they can't get a job. And, uh, and this happens uh, also with uh, high school kids that uh, they graduate and they, they stay at home. And I've heard this complaint since I was a high school kid. Well, do I need to obey my parents if I'm living at home? I'm 19 years old. I don't need to do that. As long, to the degree that mom and dad are paying, the, paying your bills, to that degree you are under their authority. If you are financially independent, then you can be independent of their authority. But if you if they're paying the bills, then they write the rules. Money talks, and that's the reality of it. And if you're a child and you uh, want to be independent of your parents and take their money, then you're part of the problem because you're just as self-absorbed and narcissistic as you can be. So children are to obey their parents. Now, it's interesting here that the word here in the Greek is hupakuo, not hupatasso. Hupatasso was the word that was used with wives. Wives submit to your husbands. Here it is a word that is related to the root word here of akuo, which means to hear. Remember back as I read earlier in Deuteronomy chapter 6, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord alone. It's not a word that just simply means to listen in terms of having your auditory nerves stimulated. It means to listen and obey. It's like when a uh, teacher says to her class, listen to me. And that doesn't mean just hear what I say. It means hear and do what I say. And so it has a, a, a prefix here, hupa, which it means to be under, listen under. And so this is a word that comes to be listen to your parents and do what they say. That's basically what it means. Listen to your parents and do what they say. This is the role of children. They are to listen and obey their parents in the Lord. Now, that's an important qualification because what that means is that children are not required as anyone else who's under authority, any Christian that's under authority, is not required to obey a command from parents that violates a command from the Lord. The Lord is the higher authority. This goes back to the principle we studied in Acts chapter 5 when the Sanhedrin ordered Peter and John 
uh, not to proclaim the gospel anymore. And their response was uh, that they had to obey God, and God was a greater authority than the Sanhedrin, so they couldn't follow the mandates of the uh, they couldn't follow the mandates of the Sanhedrin. So they have to follow the higher authority. But other than that, children are to obey their parents in the Lord. Why? It's the right thing to do. Now, that's going to rub a lot of people wrong in our society because they no longer believe in absolute right or absolute wrong. But the Scriptures assume that there's absolute right and absolute wrong, and the reason children are to obey their parents is because it's the right thing. Now, when we get into the next verse, Ephesians 6, 2, and 3, we have a quote from the Old Testament. Honor your father and mother, which means to respect them. To honor them. There's no back-talking to your parents. There's not uh, giving lip service to what they, what they ask. It is to fulfill their spoken wish and their unspoken wish to the fullest of your ability. To honor them, to respect them, father and mother. And then the next phrase says, which is the first commandment with a promise. Now, what was the promise? The promise, as stated in Ephesians 6.3, is that it may be well with you and you may live long on the earth. Now, that promise is part of uh, just the framework of the Mosaic Law. And we have to understand that part of the Mosaic Law is that if you obey God and you implement God's will as stated in the Mosaic Law, then Israel would stay in the land and then God would bless them and that they would have prosperity and that God would provide everything for them, and they would have a rich, abundant physical life. It's not talking about spiritual life. It's talking about your physical existence and your physical life. But if, but if you're disobedient, then God's going to bring judgment upon the nation. This is also evidenced in a, another command that's given within the Old Testament. We have to always remember to, you have to exegete, you have to study Scripture in light of its context. There's another aspect to the Mosaic Law related to uh, the loss of life for children, and this is in Exodus 21.15. Exodus 21.15 says, He who strikes his father or his mother shall surely be put to death. In other words, it's not just back-talking, but a child who strikes his father and mother was to be executed. That was a capital offense. Now, why is God so serious about this? Because it shows that the child has not learned authority orientation. And if a child does not learn authority orientation, then a whole host of children will not learn authority orientation. And then you will raise up a generation that no longer thinks as the previous generation, uh, according to the Word of God, and this will bring a collapse and destruction uh, to the culture. So you have this command here, uh, he who strikes his father or his mother shall surely be put to death. He who kidnaps a man, whether he sells him or he's found in his position, shall be surely put to death. And then the verse 17 comes back to the family again. He who curses his father or his mother shall surely be put to death. And so there's a framework within the Mosaic Law that if you are juvenile delinquent, if you're disobedient to your parents to, a, to an extreme degree, then they were to bring charges against you. You were to be taken out in the public square, and you were to be stoned. It's a death penalty. 
That's why you have the statement that honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise. And the understanding that I remember hearing a pastor years ago talk about this, and he brought in all kinds of other things related to the promise. He never looked at the context of the law. The promise in the law is that if you're a disobedient child and you're disrespectful to your parents, then that's a death penalty offense, and you won't live very long. But if you honor your parents, you will have a full life. So it's got an immediate context in terms of the uh, death penalty law, and it has a, a much broader context. But this issue of obedience to parents is not something that children are, brought, are, are born with. Remember, they are born with a sin nature. Their default position is self, uh, self-focus. Their default position is sin. Their default position is disobedience. They are self-absorbed from the time they come out of the womb. And so it is the job of the parents to train the children. But we'll get into the positive aspects of that next time. This morning, I just want to wrap up with one final verse that demonstrates the problem when, when parents do not train up their children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. This is in Proverbs chapter 30. Proverbs chapter 30 gives us a great insight into this uh, this problem, starting in verse verse 11. Verses 11 through 17, I think, are a fitting analysis of the future generations of this country. There's a generation that curses its father and does not bless its mother. See, this is the opposite of Exodus 20, verse 12. There's a generation that's pure in its own eyes. See, it's self-absorbed and it is it has justified itself in its own eyes. Yet it is not washed from its filthiness. There's no recognition of sin, so there's no cleansing from sin, and the sin nature reigns supreme within that generation. There's a generation, oh, how lofty are their eyes. This is focusing on the arrogance. They think they have finally figured it all out. And their eyelids are lifted up. They think they have found the, the, the ultimate solution. There's a generation whose teeth are like swords. What this is talking about is their, their verbal sins, the attacks the, the that they have with their, with their mouth, with their, their words, uh, whose fangs are like knives to devour the poor from off the earth and the needy from among men. They are completely focused on, upon their own needs and their own, uh, their own satisfaction and going forward. Then it says, the leech has two daughters, give and give. Isn't that interesting? I knew you all would like that this morning. The leech has two daughters, give and give. This speaks of an entire generation coming up that looks to the federal government as the source of its prosperity. It wants somebody else to give and to give and to take care of them. These are the things that are never satisfied for never say enough. Okay, and then there's this, these four things that are listed. This is a Hebraism where it lists the four key things that are never satisfied. The grave, because it's always taking more dead. The barren womb. It's never satisfied. It can never, doesn't ever have a child. Uh, the earth that is not satisfied with water, 
and the fire never says enough. The fire continues to absorb just as the earth absorbs water. The eye that mocks his father and scorns obedience to his mother. The ravens of the valley will pick it out and the young eagles will eat it. That is a picture of the destruction, the last clause, the destruction that comes to those who do not honor the values, the beliefs of their father's generation. Those who reject the truths of their parents that are built on the scripture will self-destruct. And this is exactly what we're seeing in this nation. But it goes back to the parents. This is why there's been such an assault on the family and the culture. Satan is attacking the family and the culture uh, of our country and around the world in order to build his kingdom in, in this world. And the only thing that can be a protection, parents, against the influence of the world in your family is the word of God and to rethink and refocus your priorities upon the word of God and how you teach and train your children. And that's what we'll get into in the, uh, in the coming weeks with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we're thankful that we have your word to go to. We see the emphasis in the scripture upon the value of the family, the value of the parents, the value that's placed upon the training uh, of the children and how uh, ch- children clearly have their own volition. Children, children clearly can uh, choose to reject that of their parents, which is what we see here. They choose to dishonor their parents, and to disrespect the values of their parents, and that will lead to self-destruction. And we see this across the board in, in our own culture. We've seen it now through uh, three different generations since the end of the Second World War, and this is going to eventually result in the collapse of our civilization. But there's only hope. There's always hope, and there's only one hope, and that is a return to your word. And, Father, we pray that first and foremost as individuals we take a good look at our own lives and implement these principles where we can and as much as we can in our own environment. And second, that we pray for this nation and pray for a restoration of the importance of the family and that we also elect leaders who will implement legislation that is pro-family and not anti-family. And, Father, above all, we know that the only solution to the problems that we see around us is a spiritual solution that focuses upon the cross. For the base problem is a problem of sin, and the only solution is a solution to sin. And that solution was provided at the cross by Jesus Christ who paid the penalty for our sin. And so, Father, as part of our lives as Christians, it's not just a focus upon our children and upon our families and training them, but also our witness to the world around us in terms of the priorities of our life and placing our priorities on the eternal values of Scripture and making sure that we are dedicated to being trained in our thinking according to your word. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal life, that they would take this opportunity to make that sure and certain. Jesus Christ died on the cross for the sins of mankind, for all sins. No sin was left undealt with. God the Father in his omniscience imputed every sin to Jesus Christ, and he paid for that sin on the cross. The issue that remains is whether or not that is applied to you, and you apply it to yourself simply by 
trusting in Jesus Christ as your Savior. The instant you believe in Jesus Christ, you receive eternal life, and that will never be taken from you. Father, it's our prayer this morning that if anyone here has never trusted in Christ, that they would do so this morning. Now, Father, we pray that you would challenge us with your word as we continue this study. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.